I'm Brittany Gallagher, reporting to you on Digital Culture for Digital Village. My guest this week is Lydia Lawrenson, who works in digital media and media-related technologies. Lydia has previously written a lot about sexuality, BDSM, and gender under the pseudonym Clarice Thorne, and she recently came out of the closet, so to speak, and connected her two identities. We talk about the blogosphere back in 2006-2007, keeping anonymity online, free speech on the internet, and what legislation like SESTA-FOSTA can and is already doing. But first, the origin of Clarice Thorne. So I started that blog around 2008. And by that point, I had been into BDSM for a few years. And it had been a bit of a shock for me to come into that sexuality, that identity. It was a really deep thing for me, but it was also something that I was in a lot of denial about and had struggled with a lot from childhood, to be honest. So I had gone through this several year process of trying to reconcile this aspect of myself. Around 2007, 2008, I had started searching for just to see how people were thinking about different aspects of it, because I knew that there were sort of like how to books, like how to tie someone up. But I was trying to understand if there was a BDSM liberation movement, for lack of a better phrase. Like I couldn't really figure out how to think about destigmatizing sexuality or what the politics were around any of it. I knew people shouldn't know it about me. I knew it was dangerous for me to reveal this truth about myself. Remember, this was 2007, 2008, so things were pretty different, even that short of a time ago. So one day I'm like Googling BDSM liberation movement and I find a blog. And this was before the blogosphere was such a polished, corporatized situation. It was very indie. It was very community-oriented. It was much more like a big chat room with a bunch of sub chat rooms where people were sort of chatting about different topics, but they were writing essays. And one of the blogs that I found, I don't know if it's still around even, but it was called Let Them Eat Pro SM Feminist Safe Spaces. (laughs) Such a good blog. It really inspired me. And from there, realized that there was this conversation happening. So that was why I started my blog as Clarice Thorne. And I used a fake name, partly because... I didn't want that stuff to be associated with me, my real name. It's a very stigmatized identity. I was afraid of what it might mean for my professional life. I just wanted to be part of the conversation because the blogosphere wasn't, again, people weren't thinking about blogs back then in the same way that they are now, where they think of it as like a publishing platform. I mean, some people were, but it was really rare to think about it that way. It was more of a type of social media. So I was like, I want to be in this conversation, but the way I'm going to do that is by having this fake name. It happened to be the same name that I was using in the BDSM community, where a lot of people over history have used fake names. So I used the name Clarice Thorne, and I set up my blog. And that was where it started, and then um, it blew up really, really quickly. I was living in Chicago at the time, and I did a film series at a local museum. And a lot of the material that I did as part of the film series, it was like a sexuality education film series. A lot of the material that I hosted on my blog because it was just the easiest place to host it. So that drove a lot of attention to the blog. The film series actually got national attention. For example, Violet Blue, who's like an old school famous sex writer, linked to my film series. And she wrote a whole blog post about it. So there was a whole bunch of information there. And then, yeah, I just started getting more and more involved in the blogosphere. I got a call from Oprah's office, was like, hey, do you want to go on the show? And I was like, can I go on your show and be anonymous? And they were like, no. And I was like, okay, I guess not then. There was just a lot of attention very quickly. And I think in retrospect, what was going on is that I had unwittingly hit on a cultural moment around BDSM, but also around blogs. 2008 was basically the year that blogs suddenly went from being this counterculture fringy phenomena to being a thing that people took seriously. 
And so very quickly, my blog blew up. And over the next few years, I started cross-posting to a major blog. I started getting stuff cross-posted in major media outlets, like The Guardian would eventually cross-post one of my most famous posts. I did that full-time for a few years, I guess, ultimately. And then uh, towards the end of 2011, I was invited to speak at South by Southwest, which is like a social media convention. And it was about sort of my work as Clarice Thorne. And then I show up at South by Southwest and it's interactive, of course. And um, I'm sitting at South by Southwest and I'm realizing social media is a job. I mean, it sounds funny when I say it now, but I really hadn't been thinking about it back then. I was also releasing my first self-published book around that time and it hit number one in a couple of categories on Amazon. And I had just taught myself to do all this stuff. Like I taught myself to hand code all of my books on Amazon. I taught myself how to use WordPress and how to run an internet business and all of this stuff. And I wasn't making that much money, but I was famous. And just going to South by Southwest and realizing that there was an entire industry around this totally blew my mind. And so some of the connections that I made at South by Southwest helped me get my first clients in San Francisco. And I ended up transitioning into working in the technology industry as a user researcher, product designer, media strategist, that kind of thing. What was it like maintaining a pseudonym, especially once you get to somewhere like South by Southwest? Did you do a Daft Punk thing and wear, wear something? Like, what, what did you do? <laughs> I mean, it was a little bit less intense in 2012 than it is now. I mean, now, now everyone has amazingly high quality cameras built into their phones. Everyone has a phone like that and everyone uses Instagram and Twitter supports pictures. There was this sort of intermediate period, which is when I went to South by Southwest the first time in 2012, where you still had to be a little bit thoughtful in order to get pictures. And so basically I told them like, look, I'm not coming unless there's no video recording and no pictures of me. And they were like, okay, yeah, we can enforce that. Wow. That was my condition of going. And um, they, I mean, there were a few weird things, like they really wanted like a picture for my badge. And I was like, nope, <laughs> we had to argue about that. But it worked out. That was pretty close to the tipping point. I think of 2012, 2013, 2014, like those are the years when it became unrealistic to appear anywhere in public and expect to have a pseudonym. Before that, it was still possible to do it. Like I was able to go to universities and um, I was able to do all these speaking engagements and stuff like that and make no pictures part of my policy. That was still feasible back then. And then, I mean, in terms of the data, in terms of protecting my identity online, that was a little bit challenging. I kept everything pretty separate. I had separate logins. I still have a separate Facebook account as Clarice Thorne. I had a separate Twitter account. I have a separate email account. There wasn't a ton of linkages between the Lydia Lawrence and stuff and the Clarice Thorne stuff, but it did start to break down. Like I remember the first inkling that I had that this might be difficult to maintain, even if I was paranoid, was when Google released a product called Google Buzz, which probably no one remembers now because it was shut down pretty quickly. But... The way Google Buzz was released, I mean, it was really awful, actually. It became this sort of parable of how not to do the security and the privacy on a new product. I think they intended it to be a social media product. This was back in 2010, I think. But the way they did it was it automatically activated when you opened your Gmail. You would get like this pop-up that was like, hey, Google Buzz is activating. Yes, no. And you would probably click yes because you trust Google. But what the pop-up didn't tell you was that once you activated Google Buzz, it immediately listed all of your top email contacts publicly as part of your Google Buzz profile. Wow. So 
it, right, exactly. So it was this crazy thing. And like a lot of people who were just everyday users didn't necessarily notice this, but everybody in the sexuality community noticed it immediately because it was just everyone who was operating under a pseudonym, it would immediately break your pseudonym. It would immediately, if you were a sex worker and you were emailing with clients, I mean, there were all kinds of security breaches that come out of Google just immediately showing everyone your contacts like that. And so fortunately, I didn't activate Google Buzz, but the only reason I didn't is that people warned me. I was in Africa at the time, interestingly, serving in the Peace Corps. I don't actually have great internet access, so I'm not accessing my email very often. And so it just happened that I happened to go on Twitter before I accessed my email after they released Google Buzz, and everyone on Twitter was just like, do not activate Buzz for the love of God. And so I didn't. But if I hadn't gotten that warning in time, that totally would have been the moment when everyone knew who Clarice Thorne was. And I mean, honestly, part of it too is I don't think there was ever really, as far as I know, no one with negative intention ever made a sustained effort to find out who I was. It's possible that people tried and failed, but there were a couple situations actually where really dedicated readers of my Clarice Thorne work put in the legwork and somehow managed to figure out who I was. Like it took them a while. They had to really like go through a bunch of different weird internet back records and stuff like that. And they told me, they were like, hey, I was able to figure out who you are. And I was like, cool. Well, now you know I'm a random girl. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> like, it wasn't that exciting, right? <laughs> as far as I know, nobody who had negative intention towards me ever found out my identity while I was operating as Clarice Thorne. But that was, part, that was largely due to paranoia on my part. You know, I have a bunch of friends at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They gave me tips. And past a certain point, I mean, honestly, part of coming out of the closet for me this year is that I do a lot of work right now in digital media and ethics of technology and that kind of stuff. And I feel more comfortable being open about who I am and it's part of my ethics and my integrity, but also it just kind of past a certain point was like, you know, putting in this much effort to protect this information, it takes a lot of bandwidth. And probably at some point there's gonna be some data aggregator somewhere in the same way that Google Buzz did. And I just don't want to live waiting for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's better if you have control over it, basically, and control of what happens and how it happens. Yeah, and all the crazy stuff going on in digital media now with all the backlash and polarization and people sort of getting increasingly mean-spirited. I mean, there was plenty of that that I saw when I was being Clarice Thorne full-time, for sure. But it's just getting less and less safe out there. And so to some extent, I was just like, why don't I just tell my employers who I am? How about I just get ahead of this? Like, hey guys, this is who I am. I can stop working with you if you want, but I would like it if we kept working together. It makes it a little bit more of a civilized interaction. So did that work out well with all of your clients? Yeah, I was scared. Yeah. I mean, it was probably the scariest moment. It was interesting because I didn't expect it to be as scary as it was. But as I was like writing those emails to my clients, just like feeling like my heart in my throat, my stomach getting all twisted up, like and feeling like I'm about to throw up. I've been sitting on this secret for 10 years. It was a really powerful moment for me to understand how strongly the stigma had been affecting me. Even in this day and age when post 50 shades of gray, it's much less of a big deal. And like over time, I've let a lot of people know about it. And in some sense, it wasn't that big of a deal, but it still was. And fortunately, my clients were totally chill. Yeah, it's yeah. different coming out, though, to like your friends and, and people like that who have kind of built a community as opposed to like your boss. <laughs> Those are, are like letting them know that there's this other thing that you do. I think I definitely understand. 
obviously you're talking about taboo topics and you know censorship, right? What was it like running a website, maintaining a pseudonym that also was at risk of being censored? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I don't even know all the places where my work has been censored, but there's definitely a lot. One of the incidents that really sticks out in my mind, and I don't even remember where I was giving this lecture. I think it was a university in Chicago somewhere. But I was giving a lecture at some academic institution about my material as Clarice Thorne, which is in-depth sexuality commentary. It's been taught in classrooms. And one of my essays was eventually reprinted in Oxford Anthology about sexuality and anthropology. So it's, it's like kind of heavy stuff. You know, it's kind of serious. It's academic. But a lot of it's really personal, too. And so I have this moment where I'm giving this lecture in this academic environment. And I'm like, you can pull up this particular blog post on your screen. And someone in the audience raises their hand in there. Your website doesn't work on our network. Your website is censored at this university. I mean, it was just so interesting, right? It was such a weird moment. <laughs> like, it's funny that they had managed to bring me in while at the same time they were censoring my work. But I think they weren't aware of it in that way. It's just whatever system they were using to run their internet was censoring a bunch of stuff. And then whatever method it was using to censor that stuff happened to catch my website, even though my website wasn't something that they thought was worth censoring necessarily. And I think that's a good example of how a lot of censorship ends up catching stuff unexpectedly and in unintended ways. It's definitely getting worse now. Sometimes I think about the fact that my books are print on demand. So if the platform that prints, on, that prints my books on demand, which is owned by Amazon, if that platform ever censors my books, then the only books in existence that I will have written will be the ones that were already printed. It's a weird thought, huh? Right now I, I exist in, I live in this way where it's, sure, my website is viewed by hundreds of thousands of people and lots of people get this information and I try to make it as free as possible and the books are easy to get because they're on Amazon, but it really would only take a very slight adjustment for all of that to not be true anymore and for those books to suddenly be rare. And um, I think about this, especially in the wake of legislation like SESTA-FOSTA, which is recent legislation passed last year. And ostensibly the intention of SESTA-FOSTA is to curb trafficking online. I mean, it's a really badly written law. It was opposed by the Electronic Frontier Foundation and a number of other free speech organizations. It's really confusingly written. It's really broad. And a lot of the fallout from SESTA-FOSTA has been websites that have nothing to do with trafficking getting censored. And that has had an impact on sexuality publishers, including educators like myself. And it's just one of those things. I think those of us who work in this area of sexuality, we have this sense all the time that our work isn't necessarily safe. It's not necessarily going to stay out there. Many of my favorite authors had their stuff censored at one point or another. So I think all of us have the sense you can't really take anything for granted. And we try to pay attention to the legislation and campaign where we can, but we're a pretty small interest group. And... Um, I think it's really important, and I, I'm a pretty hardline free speech advocate as a result, but I think a lot of people don't see free speech in this way. Like They're like, oh, it's okay to censor some stuff because some people say harmful things, and it's like, yeah, that's true, but in actuality, the minute you censor anything, the first things that go down are things that are scandalous or weird, and that's sexuality stuff. So like, it doesn't really matter what your intentions are in terms of setting up your deplatforming or your restrictions or whatever it is, the first thing that's going to go is sexuality-related stuff every time. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So are you talking more on the government end or are you talking even about companies like obviously the whole Alex Jones thing has? Yeah. So are you talking just from the government type of censorship or even corporate censorship? I guess in the Amazon case, if they decided to censor stuff, that would affect you probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's tricky because government and corporations don't exist in uh, don't exist in vacuum. I mean, Apple and Amazon already deplatform a ton of sexuality related stuff like that's not new that's been going on forever and i mean when you think about it right like basically every major internet platform does some censorship it's just a question of where they draw the lines like you never see porn on facebook that's not because people aren't sharing porn (laughs) on facebook right and it's the same on google it's like google just has this safe search thing and safe search is always on like most people don't think about that but that's true and then if you accidentally get caught in their porn filter then you're screwed but otherwise sexuality related content is pretty open on google So from that perspective, these companies are already removing content. And the thing about something like SESTA-FOSTA is because the law is written in such an unclear way, that actually motivates those companies to be more aggressive in their censorship because they don't necessarily know what's going to get them in trouble and what isn't, if that makes sense. The word that people use to describe this in free speech circles is the chilling effect. And it's pretty well known that the chilling effect is always much broader than whatever specific content was intended. So something like SESTA-FOSTA has this huge chilling effect, and we're even seeing it. It's really hard to say what it's affecting and what it isn't because Amazon isn't necessarily sharing what's getting taken down or what's getting affected. There's all these different ways that companies interact with this content that is affected by the social fabric and the cultural expectations around them and the government. And it's not like a closed system. It's not like the government says, let's take down this website. And that website is the only thing that gets taken down. Yeah. So you came out as Clarice. Now what are you working on? I started this new project, Alternative Parenting, which is intended to showcase different perspectives on parenting from the point of view of alternative culture. So that includes co-housing with kids, different approaches to co-parenting, like platonic co-parenting, where people have parenting roles but aren't necessarily genetically related to the child, as well as uh, polyamorous parenting. And a lot of these new ways of thinking about parenting are um, fueled or facilitated by genetic and fertility technology, which is changing things in a lot of ways. Not, not just the fact that women can freeze their eggs, but also the fact that it's much easier for people now to reproduce without actually having sex. And these changes, I think, are just beginning to hit society, and they are going to be a big deal. My guest this week has been Lydia Lawrenson, who recently came out of the closet as Clarice Thorne, who writes about sexuality and gender. You can find out more about Lydia and her new project, Alternative Parenting, on Twitter at Lydia Lawrenson, L-Y-D-I-A-L-A-U-R-E-N-S-O-N. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Culture. I'm Brittany Gallagher. You can find out more on our website at digitalculture.la or follow me on Twitter at In a Quantum World. Sorry.